All righty. Uh, well, let's turn uh, to in our Bibles to First Timothy, and we'll continue our verse by verse study there. And while you're doing that, I will start our PowerPoint so you can follow along. I welcome those of you just joining online. Good to see you. Uh, do you, you enjoy having Tim here last week? Uh, just a faithful, faithful brother, and uh, we were grateful to have him here. <clears throat> okay, uh, well, First Timothy, what are we talking about? We're talking about instructions for a healthy church. As we uh, come back to First Timothy, I know it's been a few weeks. You remember that uh, Paul is writing to Timothy. We, we read in the first couple of verses of First Timothy chapter 1, Paul has left his young disciple in the faith, Timothy, in the city of Ephesus. There's a church there that Paul was uh, a part of for several years, and it was doing well. And as, as Paul had to leave that church, uh, he anticipated that they would have difficulty and, and challenge like any church would. And sure enough, uh, that, that challenge came a few years later, and so Paul now dispatches Timothy to go uh, to uh, the, the city of Ephesus in order to address some of the challenges and problems that they were facing. And, and so we, we can think of Timothy, the first Timothy, as here's this church that, that's not, well, I say a broken church. Here's this church that's struggling, and here's the remedy that's coming. Or if we want to make it a positive, we can just say these are instructions for a healthy church. And I know you, you would raise your hand with me and say that, that we do not want to be an anemic, ineffective, sickly, um, unhealthy sort of church. We want to be healthy. We want to be thriving. We want to be growing. We want to be faithful. We want to be effective. We want to be encouraging. We want to be a bright light to our community and beyond. And, and that's just not going to happen. Uh, you know, if, uh, if, if Ernie there wants to go out for the cross-country team, right, because he, he's a great runner, he, he wants to go out and do that. He's going to have to train and work hard, right? Or, or those of you that are swimmers, you have to train and work hard and, and put that time in. And, and that, that, uh, that brings you into a place where you are going to be as effective in your sport uh, as you can be. And, and think of church health in the same way. Uh, it's just like bodily health, right? We, we don't grow to be thriving and strong and mature by sitting on the couch and eating potato chips all day, as wonderful as that might be. We, 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 we grow in maturity and wisdom and effectiveness by employing the means that God gives us in his word to thrive and be strong and thus be effective. So First Timothy is a roadmap for that. It's an instruction manual for how to be a healthy church. We're going to eavesdrop on this, some, uh, some God-inspired eavesdropping here, right? We're going we're gonna to listen in on this conversation that Paul has with Timothy, who's one of the elders. He's one of the pastors there. And we're going to listen in on that conversation, and we're going to walk away saying, okay, these are the things that we need to focus on to grow and be strong as a church. And, and here's some things to, to be careful of, the things that Paul's going to call out and say, this is bad, don't do that. We're going to pay attention to those things so that we likewise can avoid uh, such challenges in our own church, okay? So let's just review. Uh, this is where we've been. So if you're here for the first time, uh, this is the review of where we've, we've uh, been these last few weeks. And then we're going to get into chapter 3, Lord willing, today to talk about um, the marks of godly leadership. So uh, just by way of review... How are we going to be a healthy church? Number one, we've got to deal with false teaching and those who support it. We cannot tolerate false teaching and grow and survive. If you know this, those of you that have studied church history, you know 
that false teaching that is tolerated in the church usually becomes the uh, destruction of the church, ultimately. And you know how it is. It's like, well, oh, what's wrong with this? It's just another view, you know, and we should be open and tolerant. And, and there, there's a time for, for legitimate biblical views on different subjects. But that's not what we're talking about here. Is we gonna, we're going to see what's going on in First Timothy is the elders themselves, some of the leaders themselves, have become corrupt. And, and they're saying things. We, we can just look, look down at the text here. Um, uh, they're, they're talking about um, in... Uh, Verse 5, he says, the goal of our instruction is love from a a pure heart. This is chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of our instruction is uh, love, right, from a a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, and yet they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. There is nothing worse than somebody who's confident and wrong. Very hard to get through to somebody like that. That's why humility... Humility is a godly attribute, right? Uh, it talks about here uh, in verse 3 that they're, they're teaching strange doctrines, they're paying attention to myths, to genealogies, and they're focusing on speculation. So that gives us a little bit of an idea. They're not focused on the main thing, are they? They're not, they're not focused on the Bible, they're focused on myths. They're not focused on sound doctrine, they're focused on wrong doctrine. They're not focused on things that matter. They're focused on things that don't matter, like endless genealogies and whatnot. And that gave rise to legalism and and all sorts of things. And and do you guys know there are a thousand and one things that are going to distract us from the main course of the gospel today? And and just remember, these first century folks, they didn't have Google and social media to help them with that. So so if they had distractions like that, you can imagine that, that we all the more so and therefore, when we see false teaching, when we identify it, we need to deal with it in a biblical matter and not tolerate it. We also need to recognize that the, the gospel, right, the hope of the gospel is, is effective to change lives. Paul gives us his own testimony. Paul says, you know what? I was a false teacher. I was a blasphemer. I was a murderer of Christians. And yet God showed me mercy. So as we think about false teachers, as we deal with false teaching, as we look at other people around us that are hostile and cold to the gospel, we don't lose heart because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Terry will talk about that in Romans again, the theme verse, chapter 1, verse 16 in Romans, right? It is the power of God to change lives. So we don't give up. We don't lose hope. We stay the course. We don't get... You ever do this? Parents, remember this? You're trying to do what the Bible says to do in parenting, and it's not working, and so what do we do? We try something other than what God says. And what happens? We make the problem worse, don't we? And, and that's what the, the, the point here is not to give up on the gospel because sometimes people don't respond the first time. Or maybe it's been years even. We don't give up on the remedy just because we don't see it uh, being effective as quickly as we would like. Number three, make a commitment to keep the faith by fighting for the faith. We talked about that, right? That that Christianity is not a cruise. It's not a vacation. It's not uh, a nice, relaxing afternoon in the backyard with a cup of sweet tea in your hand. I mean, as wonderful as those things are, it's a fight. It's a race. It's a boxing match. It's an effort. It's a It's a striving endeavor. And if we're going to be effective as a church, we need to get out of the make vacation mentality and into the war and battlefield mentality. Not, not that we're going to you know, shoot each other or anything like that, but, but this idea that we're going to fight for our faith. 
We're going to fight to love one another. We're going to fight and be effective to stay the course of gospel fidelity. We're going to work hard and sacrifice to take the gospel to people around us that need it. And we're going to recognize that rest is primarily something that we do in heaven, not here. Okay? Number four, we need to be a church who prays, especially for leaders. We, we look around, we see leadership in our government, leadership in our world, and we go, oh, good night, what's going to happen? It's so discouraging, and we get all frustrated with that, and, and, and we, you know, we yell at our Fox News app, and we, we do all these sorts of things, right? And the Bible's answer is, pray for those people. And as we pray, especially for leaders, we remember that the gospel is effective. The, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 says, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And yes, that includes even your least favorite politician. Because God is able to change the lives of people. And so we pray for them. We pray for our leaders. And uh, speaking of praying... One of the things that a healthy church does is they train men and women to pursue godliness. And notice this, guys. The first thing that a godly man does, chapter 2, verse 8, is he does what? He prays. What a, what a church we would have if we were a church where men prayed. And you know what? I, I think part of God's kindness to us in the health that our church has enjoyed is we have men that pray in our church. I really believe that. And we need to keep that up and we need to excel still more. Uh, lifting up holy hands, meaning they're, they're holy and righteous in their dealings with other people without wrath and dissension. Uh, we also recognize uh, the, the role of women. We talked about them not, not adorning themselves with external things, right, with, with you know, garments and braided hair, and, and not, not that you have to be frumpy for Jesus. We talked about that. But, but the idea is that the focus of a godly woman's life is not on making the outside beautiful, but making the inside beautiful and being effective in her good works, as it says there, and her godliness. We also talked about roles uh, last time as well, and we'll come back to talk about that, right? Established biblical roles in the church. This is where we're going to pick it up, thinking about the roles of men and women, and uh, we'll, we'll talk uh, today about the man's role. We talked about the woman's role two weeks ago, and then what we're going to do next time is we'll talk about how the biblical roles of men and women are particularly under assault right now because of the way our our culture has polarized any any relationships where there is power involved uh we we know that that part of the part of the cultural Kool-Aid that everybody's drinking right now is this idea that you can divide people into two groups the oppressors and the oppressed now if you take that and then you map it on what the Bible talks about in terms of godly relationships in a home where you have a loving Christ-like husband who's leading his family and children and a wife who's following that leadership, a godless culture that, that that's you know, intoxicated on this oppression-oppressed uh, metaphor looks at that and says, that's not a good arrangement because a husband is going to, a, a, a husband, the way the Bible describes being a husband, that's going to, that's going to be seen as an oppressor role. Because there's not, 
quote unquote, an equality of roles in that regard. And so what we see in a lot of these secular movements that are identifying oppressor and oppressed relationships is the call to dismantle, to destroy any relationships in society where there's going to be any sort of leadership distinction, including biblical roles in the church and in the home. So what I'm saying is that your idea of biblical marriage and our idea of biblical church relationships are in the crosshairs of the cultural rifle right now as as the, the whole um, uh, uh, critical race theory and, and really just critical theory itself is, is being propagated in our culture. So we'll come back and talk about That's a really important conversation we need to have is, is how... How is that changing? And, and even when you talk to people about your faith, um, how is that going to inhibit some of those conversations from happening? So, okay, so let's pick it up in, in chapter two here, and then we'll jump into chapter three. So we, we talked last time about how um, uh, God has a role for men and women, and uh, one of those distinctions is that women should avoid teaching men or having authority over men. We talked about why that is last time, and 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 you know, really, this is not this is not a negative. This is this is like walking into the operating room, okay? Let's say we've got a surgeon, we've got a couple of nurses, some techs. We walk into the operating room and you're having heart surgery, let's say, okay? You don't want the team in the operating you don't you don't want one of the nurses saying to the surgeon um, I think I got this one doc you can just set aside I'll, you know it's, it's it's my first bypass surgery but I've watched you do it a 100 times. I'm good. You don't want that to happen in the operating room, right? When you're, guys, when you're going out on the football field, you don't want, you know, your center turning around to the quarterback and saying, hey, why don't we just switch places here? Okay, let's just see how this goes, right? You don't want them fighting, but, and that, that's what happens in the home and in the church when everybody doesn't understand what their role is. So when Paul says women should avoid teaching men or having authority over men, that, that's not a negative. That's just saying that that's not her role. And, and Paul argued last time to see how when, God designs men and women for certain roles, and when we start changing those roles, we end up putting men and women in positions that God did not intend them for them to have, and then all sorts of bad things happen there. Okay, so so uh, we're grateful for how women lead in a thousand other ways and, and have influence and teach and whatnot, uh, but not in capacities like this. Now, you guys laughed at me last time. In fact, I, I never got more uh, hate mail, more phone call, nasty phone calls, because you didn't like my picture of the older, mature women uh, that, that are encouraging younger women. I mean, that, that's what my first grade Sunday school teacher looked like in my memory. So I, you know, I, this is this is like an old memory here. So uh, anyway, so um, many many of you offered to help me since I'm obviously not the pastor of clip art here. So, um, but so, so how about this? Uh, so this is this is the paradigm. Okay, well let's build it again. So you have. Um, pastors, elders who equip believers and provide loving leadership. We're going to talk about their qualifications today and their role, okay? And they, they are providing that loving leadership, servant leadership over the course of the whole church. You have the whole church, that's you guys there, and they're engaging in the one another commands, right? So they're encouraging, they're discipling, they're helping, they're exhorting, they're loving. And when we all do that for one another, we all grow. Um, and then when we think about roles in the home, we see husbands that are called to lovingly shepherd and instruct their wives. And that's part of what Paul's talking about here in terms of a man's role and a woman's role in their home. And within that, of course, uh, women, wives in the home help train 
children, right? That, that's a part of their role. That's a part of their leadership function there in their home. When we think about the church now, we have older mature women that come alongside younger women and help them and disciple them. Okay, so, so how's this? Is, this? is that better? One of you sent this to me, so you can't complain. So if you're not happy with my older, mature Christian woman picture, send me something different, okay? But um, I think that's an upgrade from the last one. I don't know. But uh, anyway, maybe I should just stick to the text and not do pictures. Is that... Okay. All right. But you you get the paradigm here, right? The paradigm. This is how the church functions. And um, we all need to know our roles. We all need to fulfill those roles. We we need to be content in those roles. And um, so that's that's kind of how it goes here. Okay. So now moving on, let's talk about the man's role. Okay. So look with me at chapter three, verse one. Uh, It is a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation and cured by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Interesting, two times Paul's going to say, be really careful who you put into leadership in your church because there are certain decisions that we can make about that that particularly give the devil an opportunity in the lives of those men. So anytime we hear language like that, we should pay real close attention. Okay, so what's he saying? On your notes there, qualified men, that should be who, who desire the role. Qualified men who desire the role should pursue the office uh, of elder in the church. And you say, I didn't read the word elder, Keith. Where where, where are you getting that? Uh, We'll talk about the language here in a moment. Um, but notice it says here, if, if any man aspires to the office, it is a good work he desires to do. Uh, wanting to serve at the leadership level in the church is, is a really good aspiration. It's really good. And that, that sort of subjective desire, when a man wants to be in a leadership role like that, that, that desire is part of what we call a a call to leadership, a call to pastoral elder leadership. Uh, in other words, uh, if a man has no desire to do that, well, he's not called because that desire is part of the call. Notice with me here, it's qualified men who desire the role. Uh, while we say you have to want the role, not just everybody that wants the role is qualified to assume the role. So let's, let's look at this in more detail. Now notice... Um, on your notes there, the words elder, overseer, bishop, and pastor. Did you know this? Depending on your church tradition, maybe you came from a church tradition where you had bishops, uh, maybe you had uh, uh, overseers, maybe maybe you come from a tradition where all you had were pastors and deacons, and some of this other language is a little bit unique to you. So let, let me let me smooth this out for you, okay? There are three New Testament words 
used to describe the same role of leadership. Uh, they are the words elder, uh, bishop, and pastor. Okay, overseer is another translation of the word bishop. And uh, if you look in those passages that I have listed there, uh, we, we see some of those, right? In Acts chapter 20, we read about the Ephesian elders. Um, in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 and 1 Peter chapter 5 verse First Peter chapter 5 verses 1 to 2. What, what we see is the New Testament uses three different words to describe the same office. And that, that's what I want you to see. There's one office of leadership and there are three different terms used to describe it. And you say, well, that's confusing. If there's just one office, why didn't you just use one term? Well, the answer is, like in many other vocations, there's different language used to describe the same office based on function. So looking at those words there, the word elder, what do you think the word elder signifies? Not a trick question. Yeah, someone who's older, someone who's more mature. Now, we just read that, right? Paul just said they're not a new convert, right? But they, they need to be somebody that's a little more mature, a little older in the faith. And uh, so the office of, of pastor elder is not a, a, the proper context for rookie Christians, it's, it's, a, it's a role for more mature and thus probably older men to assume. Well, what about the word overseer or bishop is not helpful, but the word overseer. What, do, what does overseer kind of come to mind then? A supervisor? Management? Shepherd? Okay, so elder has to do with his maturity. Overseer has to do with his role of... Um, overseeing of we could say managing uh the people of god on a leadership team right so elder is more of his character overseer is more of his management the third word there is the word pastor or shepherd and that speaks to his care or we might say the manner in which he goes about doing it okay so you ready for this elder is his maturity overseer is his role pastor is his manner does that make sense I'll say that again. Elder is his maturity. Overseer is his role. Pastor is his manner, the way he goes about functioning in that role. And so all three of those words are used to try to fill out the picture of what are these guys like and what are they supposed to do and, and why are they, how are they doing it? So that's why we have those, those three, uh, words. The, the Bible nowhere indicates that a bishop is somehow an overseer of a bunch of priests or pastors. There's no hierarchy here as we might find in some other denominations. Uh, So biblically speaking, these are all describing the same single office of elder pastor in the local church. Um, So these are your your free Greek words for today, since I know you're wondering the word elder is presbuteros. You know that. What what word do we get from presbuteros? Presbytery, okay? So our Presbyterian friends, you're like, Presbyterian, where did that word come from? It actually comes from the Bible. And in Presbyterian, the Presbyterian denomination, they emphasize the importance of elder leadership. And you know what? They're right about that because that comes right from the Bible. The word overseer, which is the word we have here in our text, is the word episkopos. That's where we get, what word comes from that? Episcopal or Episcopalian, right? That's another denomination. And again, that, that's, that's emphasizing, again, the overseeing function here. Uh, poimain, I didn't put poimain on here. Poimain is the word for pastor, uh, which is the third word there. Okay, so would that, does that make sense?
Okay, we're talking about the same office, same group of guys, but we use different words to describe so we understand what's going on here. Now, these qualified men who desire the role should pursue the office of elder, and uh, they should desire the office, right? We saw that. Secondly, they should be qualified in their character. And you'll notice Paul spends a long time talking about their character. So let's say you've got some young guy, and he's great at preaching, and he's great with people, and right? And we think, man, this is, this is pastor material potentially. Well, that might be true. But the first thing we really need to look at, notice Paul doesn't say, you know, he's gifted to do it. We talk about people so gifted to do it. That's not the first qualification. The first qualification is, is he a man of character? So let, let's just uh, look through these. I, I tried to give you, most of these are, are self-explanatory, but I tried to give you a couple of words of explanation there just so you had a little bit of an idea uh, beyond that. The, the first one, and this is the most important one really in terms of the order here, is the elder is above reproach. He's not reproachable. That word reproach means a cause or occasion for blame, disgrace, or discredit. Uh, an elder lives above the possibility of accusation. They're living above reproach in terms of the decisions they make, the lifestyle choices they make, um, the people that they're involved with, that, that there's no occasion here that someone would come and make an accusation of sin because this guy flies at high altitude when it comes to his character, right? He's, he's flying above questionable behavior, questionable um, hobbies or, or, or you know, questionable uses of money, questionable relationships. So an elder is above reproach. He's also the husband of one wife. Uh, literally, Paul says he's a one-woman man, speaking to the quality of his relationship. Uh, he, he's, not, uh, he's not a womanizer. He's, he's not uh, flirtatious. He's not chasing around other women. Uh, there is no doubt about the singularity of his affection and commitment to his wife. Uh, number three, he's temperate. Uh, interesting, Paul's going to use several words here to talk about self-control. And, and you know this, right? You, you don't like to be under leadership of somebody who's not calculated, who's not predictable, who's not under control. You don't want random leadership. You don't want reckless leadership. And the reality is, for, for a pastor elder in the local church, we want people, we want men that are restrained in their conduct. They, they are in control of themselves, led by the Word of God, enabled by the Spirit of God, but, but sober, self-controlled in their conduct. They're not flying off the handle. Their, their emotions aren't out of control. Their hobbies aren't out of control. Their habits aren't out of control. We see a Spirit-enabled self-control in their lives. Number four, they're prudent. Again, another word for self-control. Thoughtful, in control of oneself. Respectable. That means that they're honorable. Um, you, you guys know that, that the Bible tells us to respect leaders, right? We, we, we respect leaders and we do that because God has put that leader over our lives. And, uh, you know, those of you in the military, you, you guys understand the chain of command. And uh, whether that guy right above you is the most wonderful person that you admire and look up to or whether he is a fool and a jerk and not a nice guy you still have to salute the uniform don't you you still have to, to show that respect because you're respecting the rank you're respecting the role 
Uh, we all understand that. But, but isn't it a lot easier to respect leaders that you actually respect, that you actually admire, that you actually look up to? And so the Bible says, yes, you might need to salute the uniform, but, but that, that, that isn't really where it should be. This, this man, these group of men, these elders are to be respectable in their character, honorable, right? Uh, uh, having characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration. Uh, where are we? Number six, hospitable. That, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? These, these are people that enjoy spending time with others, that they enjoy extending hospitality uh, in terms of time and uh, attention there. Um, they're not addicted to wine. Here's another, see, see, he comes back to, this is the third time he's referenced self-control and really being above reproach. We, we don't want a leader that's addicted to a substance because that addiction does what? What, do, what does addiction do? It takes over your life. It controls it. So you're, so you're, that leader is not exercising good leadership based on the word of God. He's exercising leisure, leadership based on his addiction. There's something else that's controlling him. And, and Paul here tar- targets the issue of alcohol, of being a drunkard. And I think we can extend that uh, by principle beyond. You, you don't want a leader that's addicted to anything. Because let's say it's not wine, let's say it's gambling, let's say it's video games, let's say it's pornography, let's say, you know, whatever it is, addiction takes over life so that it's very hard to control yourself. And, and that's not good leadership. So we're looking for elder pastors that are not addicted in their behavior, not pugnacious. Uh, that's kind of a, uh, an older word uh, used here in the NASB. It just means he's not quarrelsome. You know, it, it grieves me when I hear uh, from other churches, pastors and elders, that just seem like they're always getting into arguments with people. They're, they're always wanting to quarrel about some theological dispute, or they're, they're, over, they're overbearing in, in terms of correcting things. And, we, you know, we talked about it. We need to correct false doctrine. That's a good thing. But, but you, you don't want leaders that are always looking for a fight. They're always looking for an occasion to quarrel. I think a good leader knows how to deal with differences, deal with different opinions, deal with disagreements in a way that leads to a Christ-like resolution, not a conflict. And uh, so that's what you're looking for there. Uh, an elder is gentle, right? Um, we, we read this, you know, he's strong in his self-control, he's strong in his marriage, he's strong in living above reproach. But don't, don't you think that strong means brash, <laughs> Strong means intolerant. Strong means he's a sledgehammer for truth. <laughs> um, he's strong, but he's gentle in his delivery. Um, in fact, I think it takes a greater man to be a man of conviction, but gentle and kind in how he deals with people about those convictions. And that's the balance here that we're seeing, right? He's not a bully. He's not quarrelsome. He's not striking out, right? He's gentle. He's yielding. He's intolerant. He, I love this. This is from one of my dictionaries. Not insisting on every right or letter of the law. He, he doesn't look at every little breach as an occasion for correction. He's gentle. He's, he, he knows when 
to speak and when not to speak. Peaceable, right? He promotes peace, not conflict. That goes back to the opposite of being quarrelsome. He's free from the love of money, right? Just like we don't want him addicted to wine, we don't want him addicted to money either. He's not greedy. He's not out for sordid gain. Of course, even in the New Testament, we had people getting involved in missionary uh, organizations and, and, and elder and pastor ministerial pursuits, and they were doing it for the financial gain that they could achieve. So these men were looking for men that are free from the love of money and not greedy. Um, now, with all that character, that's all character, that, that's who the man is, now we get to skill set. Okay, so he has to desire the office, he has to be qualified in his character. Yeah, Carl, question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So the maturity and being a Christian, there's some time involved. Right. Does he fit all these things? But I know there are churches out there that would deny somebody being something, right. being an elder, or something they had done before they were Right. Yeah, great question. You guys the question? Um, so Carl's saying, hey, you know, before Christ, People commit all sorts of these things, right? In fact, we, do, do we expect anybody before Christ to do any of these in, in the biblical sense of the term? I mean, not at all, right? So, so the question is, w- would we say that, that if a person was violating some of these things before Christ, that that would disqualify them? Um, the, the, my answer is, generally speaking, no. Because these are qualities that are produced by the Spirit of God through the grace of God as a Christian, as that person has come to faith. Um, there is there is some disagreement. I will say that the one that, that comes to mind is the husband of one wife. There's some different views on that. Uh, some people will say if they've been divorced, even if it was before uh, they became a Christian, that that would be disqualifying. Other people think it's talking about a polygamy. You know, um, in first century culture, polygamy was still around, so maybe that's what it's talking about. So there is some diff- disagreement on the husband of one wife. That would be the one that typically comes to mind. Um, but I would say in general, no. What, what we're looking at in this list is who is the man today, redeemed, uh, matured, um, saved by God, growing, and, and we're not thinking about things from the past. I, I, I would think, um, I'm just, just my pastoral brain thinking about this, I could see some scenarios where we'd want to be really cautious, um, maybe like a criminal conviction or jail time or something like that. In my judgment, that doesn't put them beyond the possibility, but that might mean that more wisdom is needed in terms of when and how that might come together. But, I mean, Paul just said back in 1 Timothy 1, he just gives us his own testimony. I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. So I'm thinking if, if the apostle Paul had that privilege I don't, I don't think that removes the possibility for similar people, but um, that's, that's just my thinking on that. So, other questions? Okay, so they're qualified in their, they have to desire the office, that's number one, they have to be desired, they have to be qualified in their character, that's number two. Look at number three here. They should be qualified in their skills, in their skills. After a big long list of character, what does this person be able to do? Well, We're calling him an overseer, right? So by calling him an overseer, we understand there's a management that's needed. So we're thinking about management or or leadership, we might say. Uh, And part of that leadership is being able to teach. And that doesn't mean, you know, he he can get up and, you know, read the dictionary to you. What that means is there's a skill in teaching. 
There's a giftedness in teaching. If the main, one of the main duties that an elder pastor is going to do is equip the saints and teach and preach the word of God, there has to be an appropriate giftedness there. And with that, here's the management spelled out. Look back at the text here when he says uh, he must be one, verse 4, who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then here's the argument. If, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So there needs to be um, a track record of management in his home, and that management of his own gives some confidence that he's going to be able to manage the church. And so there's some some uh, uh, comments there about you know household and managing kids and whatnot. And then fourthly, elders should be qualified in their life experience. Notice this. They're not a new convert, uh, lest they become conceited. That that word means blinded, right? Fall into the the judgment of the devil. So we don't want somebody who's a brand new Christian because... And you guys know this. When you take somebody that's new at anything and they're good... I mean, good night. Look at college football. Look at the NFL. Look what happens when you take the up and coming, you know, 18 or 19 year old and he becomes the starting quarterback for, you know, your favorite college team. Not always. We're, we're thankful there's, there's some godly young men out there, but the vast majority of these guys, you put them in a high ranking position like that. And, and what, what do they act? How do they act? Like a prideful, arrogant fool. And what Paul is saying is the same thing can happen in your church. If you're not careful, maybe he's gifted, maybe he's talented, maybe there's potential. Great. Put him in charge of, you know, cleaning the toilets in the church or something spiritually, you know, edifying like that. Right. You know, you want to you want to put him in a role and see how does he do? That's an opportunity to view and to develop character, not giving him a high position that's going to be an occasion for conceit. And uh, even falling into the judgment of the devil. Remember, uh, the, the fall of Satan involved pride and, and desiring power and a position that he was not able to have. Notice also, in terms of life experience, he has a good reputation with those outside the church, a good testimony. And, and this is where m- maybe there might be something from his background that we would want to put some time between maybe an event from his past and, and pursuing eldership because of that. But we want somebody that uh, the, the reputation in the community is encouraging, right? He says, verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Why is that important? If his work is all inside the church, why is it important that outside, amongst unbelievers, he has a good reputation? He's a light to the world, yeah. Because we're not here to be the president of a, uh, you know, a club we're here to lead the charge to go out and be a light to the dark world. So if, if that movement is being led by somebody that the community says, oh, I can't believe you've got that guy, well, that's going to be a real detriment to the mission, isn't it? And, and this is a mark, guys. Leadership is about the team, isn't it? Leadership is about the mission. A, a, a guy that comes, oh, I should be a pastor, I should be an elder. Well, I don't think you fit the, oh, this is the call of God on my life. It's like, wait a minute. Elder pastoring is not about you. 
It's about a team. It's about the church. It's about the mission. It's about the commission of God to take the gospel out. And, the, and that's why Paul's giving us this detailed outline of who we're looking for because we want, we want it to be about the strength of the church, not an individual. We want it to be about the success of the mission, not the aspirations of one man. And so we think about that. Not a new convert, not a good reputation. And here's some additional uh, additional verses. We won't look these up, but uh, Romans 12, 7 would talk about his his giftedness to pastor and teach. Ephesians 4, 11 talks about the office of pastor elder. Uh, Titus 1, 9 talks about his doctrine. So um, he has to desire the office. He has to be qualified in his character. He has to have the skills and life experience. And then uh, the, the final piece here is really, uh, you're saying, well, how does somebody become a pastor elder? They have to be approved, as it were, by the local eldership, what we call ordination. And that ordination process is a recognition that the man wants the office. He's called by God because he has the character, he has the content, he has the commitment, and he has the qualifications to do so. Yes, Katie, question. Right. Yeah, yeah, so that's a great question. So let's say somebody wants to be an elder and they've been accused of something that falsely accused. Yeah, I think that's where, you know, the current elders would need to pray through and think through that and investigate and decide, you know, can, can we say that this person, even though something has happened in the community and so there's part of the community that, that you know, has sided with the wrong accusation, let's say, they would have to work through that. Um, but uh, But I don't know that there's a... That's automatically disqualified necessarily. I think it's an occasion for wisdom on the part of the current leadership. Okay, um, let's do this. Uh, we're about out of time, so let's hold off on deacons until next time, okay? And uh, in the meantime, um, let's, uh, let's be thankful uh, that God has been kind uh, to provide us with leaders. And, and as we, let me just say this too. Um, as our church grows, we need to identify and train additional elder pastors and uh, that's always ongoing. There are some, well, our, our elders are always praying for guys that we think may be potential future elder pastors. So pray with us, pray for that, because as our church grows, we need a growing team of qualified, humble, godly men uh, to be a part of the, the growing uh, leadership there. So, um, well, let's pray. Um, Father, we do thank you that uh, in your kind providence you have um, you have helped us. You have provided, first of all, just thank you for providing for our church. Thank you for um, men that pray. Thank you for women that emphasize godliness and not just externals. Uh, thank you for men that lead us. And uh, how we pray that you will give us grace that we would all be humble and and active and um, pursuing you, whatever our role is. Lord, we do pray. Uh, we thank you for our, our leadership, our elders, our deacons, our small group leaders. Um, we thank you for uh, Sunday school teachers, Awana leaders, people that serve in our nursery. We, we have such a, a blessed family of servants, and, and we're thankful for that. As we desire to grow, Father, and, and um, uh, be more effective and, and look for ways to maximize our influence, uh, we pray that you will help us to identify and train up additional leaders who would lead us well. And I uh, thank you for 
uh, your kindness to us. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Uh, we are um, we, we are thankful that you have shown our church family such such kindness. Uh, so make us faithful uh, in what we know we have to do, and uh, make us to be a growing and thriving, healthy church. In Jesus' name, Amen.